Caution. The contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Now on our past few episodes, we've discussed some composers that were famous for their time spent in England, but the composers were not actually English. So today we'll look at a true English born and raised composer, Sir Edward Elgar, and then take a look at his delightful Imperial March for Piano. Edward Elgar was born in 1857 in a small town near Worcester. His family was of the middle class, and his father was the owner of a music shop and piano tuning business. Since pianos played a big part in the Elgar family, it's no surprise that Edward began learning the piano from an early age. He also began taking violin lessons, however, they became too expensive, so he focused on the piano lessons instead. Nonetheless, he still practiced violin, and in his adult life was regarded as a wonderful violinist. The young Elgar also began to teach himself composition. His family had a total of seven children, and he would write little musicals for them to perform together. One such composition was called The Wand of Youth, with Elgar later revised as an adult. He had big plans to attend the Leipzig Conservatory in Germany, and longtime Coffeehouse listeners will recall that Leipzig was where all the cool composers went to school in the Romantic time period. However, due to finances, he could not attend, but he was able to keep up his musical studies and compositional experimentation in England. His first position as conductor was a rather interesting one. He conducted the ragtag ensemble put together by residents of the Worcester County Lunatic Asylum. This post also allowed him to grow as a musician and composer, as he learned to play and write for as many of the instruments in the ensemble as possible in order to understand how to make the group sound good. After he had made a small savings from various music positions in England, Elgar was finally able to travel abroad to the continent. He visited Paris and finally Leipzig, where he met and befriended Schumann. For many years, though Elgar tried and tried to make a name for himself as a composer, he still remained virtually unknown. His main musical outlet was playing violin in the Birmingham Orchestra. Eventually, the orchestra actually did perform one of Elgar's compositions, but he still hadn't made it big time. When he was 29 years old, Elgar married Alice Roberts. This was much to the dismay of Alice's family, as Elgar's social status was apparently below Alice's. Alice, however, envisioned greatness for Elgar. She was a supportive, driving force behind his compositions basically until she died. And thanks to her helpfulness and support, Elgar finally began producing works that attracted the positive attention of critics. He began first his choral works such as The Black Knight and The Saga of King Olaf. Now, some people have described Elgar as being the first great English composer since Henry Purcell, an English Renaissance composer recall other quote-unquote English composers during the Baroque and Classical eras were actually German transplants. Elgar then followed in the footsteps of such composers as Handel by writing successful oratorio-style works to achieve his favor with the critics and royal family. 
However, he also wrote some excellent non-choral works around this time as well. Perhaps one of his most well-known works today is the Enigma Variations. This launched Elgar into international fame because of the sweet complexity and skill with which each variation is written. They are so-called the Enigma Variations because the main theme is apparently an original counter-melody by Elgar that would fit with a, quote, well-known tune, the identity of which Elgar refused to divulge. To this day, it is still questioned exactly what tune would fit with Elgar's melody. To keep up his favor with the royal family, in 1897 he produced the Imperial March that we'll be taking a deeper dive into later in this episode. This piece was commissioned by his publisher, Novello, in preparation for the musical festivities of Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. He also received a commission for an oratorio-style piece called The Banner of St. George to be played at the Jubilee. In 1901, he began composing a series of works that might be even more well-known than the Enigma Variations, the Pomp and Circumstance Marches. You'll know these from the Graduation March, but there are actually a total of six very different sounding Pomp and Circumstance Marches that Elgar was quite proud of. At this time of his life, Elgar only produced two of these works, but he would continue to put out new iterations of the project throughout his life. And finally, in 1902, he wrote the Coronation Ode for King Edward's Coronation. This was the final piece of the puzzle of Elgar's greatness, along with his growing number of internationally acclaimed pieces. King Edward so favored Elgar as a composer that he was knighted in 1904, and thus Alice's visions of Elgar to be elevated to respectable society were realized. In spite of being high society now, Elgar still appreciated the quaint country English life in Worcester. When he wasn't writing music or conducting, he could be found on his bicycle, which he had named Mr. Phoebus, rambling over the country hills. He also was very fond of writing letters to his dear friends, sometimes long, detailed conversations, and other times just humorous quips. He also had a strange hobby of chemistry. Though he had never gone to school for any type of science, he loved little science experiments and apparently designed a device for the synthesis of hydrogen sulfide that for a short time was put into mass production. Between his knighting and the start of World War I, Elgar found continued fame with two symphonies, pieces for orchestra, and string quartets. However, during the war, Elgar became depressed and his rate of writing slowed. Even following the war, his rate of musical output was far less than before. None of the works produced after the war had quite the lasting fame and cultural pervasiveness as some of his pre-war compositions. On top of that, in 1920, Alice died, and Elgar's main source of motivation was gone. He essentially stopped composing, though he still remained a very active conductor. Music recording was just coming into vogue, and Elgar was very readily embracing the new technology. He served as the conductor for many of his own works to be recorded. In 1930, Elgar did turn back to composition. He completed the fifth Pomp and Circumstance March and began to work on the sixth, and also began to write his third symphony. However, he was suffering from a malignant nerve tumor and eventually, in 1934, became unable to continue writing. He passed away on February 23, 1934, at the age of 77. As we've already mentioned, the Imperial March was a piece written by Elgar in 1897. Elgar himself published two versions of it, one for full orchestra and then a condensed solo piano version that we'll be listening to today. 
At its time of publication, it was very well received and was featured on numerous performances leading up to and including the Diamond Jubilee. It did a fine job securing Elgar's place in the royal family's hearts, and his service would not be forgotten when it came time seven years later to knight him. The music itself is very characteristic of what a, quote, British march should sound like. Keep in mind, this is about the same time that American march kings were starting to hone their craft. The upbeat American marches are very bombastic in comparison to the more restrained and measured British-style marches. However, Elgar's take on the British march strays a little from the conventional, subdued tone. For its time, the themes actually sound quite exotic. And it's been postulated that this is to represent the large extent of the British Empire at this point in history. But, could it also be because Elgar was largely self-trained as a composer? Though he was very, very good at his trade, he didn't necessarily have the same rules hammered into him as conservatory-trained composers did. Because of this, he could go at composing with an almost innocent take on music, able to put all his own ideas into a work. And because he could get away with not following the rules at the time, he was able to push the bounds of what was acceptable and move the course of music history forward. Speaking of not following rules, even though Elgar has written what is definitely a march, its form is quite unusual. So in the past, we've talked about American march form, which follows a pattern of first strain to second strain to trio to break strain or dogfight to trio with mix of the first and second strain as background to close. Now, typically, British marches didn't get as complex as this and followed more just an ABA form. Elgar, on the other hand, kind of combined the two versions of the march in his form here. He starts with what sounds like an introduction, but it's actually what we'll call theme A as it comes back a few more times in the piece. what we will call theme B, as it's quite distinct from the first theme. In this piano version, Elgar uses great dynamic contrast from theme A, asking the pianist to use the force of their fingers to mimic the fanfare of trumpets that he has written into the orchestral version. Then it's return of theme A. Overall, this whole section has a punctuated and loud character, so broadly the ABA form here could be condensed into an overarching larger A section. We then come to theme C, also known as the trio section. also has some distinctly different themes throughout. We soon come to a different theme that still embodies the more gentle trio section style, but is musically different than theme C, so we'll call this theme D. 
We then have the return of Theme C. You might think that Elgar will now take us back to Theme A, however, he adds in yet another tune. can be called Theme E, or if we are translating into American March lingo, kind of serves the purpose of the brake strain or dogfight, though it is not as violent or bombastic as those of the American marches. Because it's still in the same character of themes C and D, we could loosely group all three of these themes, C, D, and E, into a larger umbrella B section. Then, Algar finally does what is expected and brings back the large A section with the iteration of themes A, B, A again. Finally, at the very end, theme C strikes back, which is in line with the American form yet again when the trio is brought back in a much more bombastic manner. Elgar tacks on an ending finale theme that incorporates bits from all the previous themes to round it all out. As you can see, even using the larger umbrella sections, it's a bit more complex than just a normal ABA. It's more like ABAB prime finale, with B prime being a modified version of B. But in spite of the unique format, it was obviously well liked by the royal family. Listening to the themes, you can hear the dignity and the grandeur that was held in high regard during the Victorian era. section is also very evocative of the German Romantics. We've talked before that Queen Victoria was a big fan of composers such as Fanny and Felix Mendelssohn, and the general German Romantic style that stemmed from their influence. The trio features quietly pulsating eighth notes in the bass clef, which is offset in the treble clef with dotted eighth sixteenth note rhythms. This combination of straight and quote swung rhythms is very characteristic of the Romantic songwriting tradition. Now, I'm sure you're all wondering if this piece had any influence on a particular composer of a similarly named piece in our <laughs> modern times. I'm sorry to say that this particular imperial march didn't inspire Darth Vader's famous tune by John Williams. That honor, of course, falls to Gustav Holst and his Mars movement from the planets. However, other pieces from Elgar's collection, particularly in the Pomp and Circumstance marches, did actually influence Williams in other aspects of the Star Wars score. Of course, if you listen really closely to each piece, you might just be able to pick out some rhythmic motifs that sound suspiciously similar. <laughs> 
So there we have it, a lovely march by a lovely English composer. Elgar really opened up the floor for the next generation of English composers to make a name for themselves on an international scale. No longer was England a land of unskilled imperials who had to import their composers from Germany. Now they had taste, skill, and voice all their own. So we hope you've liked this investigation into Edward Elgar and perhaps a side of him that you don't hear at graduation. <laughs> and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. If you did enjoy this, please consider sharing it with a friend or musically-minded acquaintance of your own and leaving us a review on iTunes or Google Play. That always helps. For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The Imperial March was performed by Peter Bradley Fulgoni. You can find The Coffee House on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.